Well, there's a famous, uh, maybe a little bit infamous Dr. Seuss book called The Butter Battle Book. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I certainly remember it. Uh, It's a little bit controversial because uh, it was uh, something of a parable about the arms race and it was released during the Cold War, so not everyone was excited about it. Uh, But it's an interesting book. It's it's straight out of Dr. Seuss fashion. You've got these two little towns right next to each other uh, and they're very similar in almost every way except that one town eats their toast, uh, butters their bread, butter side up, and the other side eats it butter side down. And what starts as just sort of a funny little difference, a little uniqueness culturally, uh, eventually turns into suspicion and distrust. I mean, if if those people over there are willing to eat their bread the wrong way, what else might they be capable of? Uh, So this leads uh, to to some distrust and to hostility, uh, and eventually into a full-on arms race where each town decides they've got to be ready to protect themselves lest the people over there try and force them to eat their bread the wrong way too. And the book actually ends on a cliffhanger. There's no resolution. Uh, It ends with a a little boy asking his dad, uh, looking at this this situation they're in of, of mutually assured destruction, he says, well, who's, who's going who's gonna to act first? Will it be us or will it be them? And the dad says, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. And that's how it ends. As I said, it, controversial, especially for a children's book. But, you know, it raises questions about the arms race and all that. But I actually think, and I've always thought, I mean, I remember as a kid, the more interesting question to me is why should this difference, buttering bread, eating it the one way up or down, why does that have to lead to hostility in the first place? I mean, this arms race is one thing, but why does this difference have to divide? Why does this difference have to produce hostility? Now, yes, it's a difference, it's a distinguishing feature of culture, at least in the land of Dr. Seuss, but why does difference have to lead to hostility? I raise the question today because today we're continuing our series out of Ephesians, uh, which we've titled Together We Are Family, and we're looking specifically at chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And in this passage, we are going to encounter what was the great divide of Paul's world in his day. Not butter side up versus butter side down, but Jew versus Gentile. So turn with me, if you would, and go ahead and turn now to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Uh, We're starting this section following up on on what Pastor Joel preached on last week, where Paul has addressed the Jews and the Gentiles in the congregation, and he has told them both that all of them, all of them are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But now, in this section, he turns his attention specifically to the Gentile believers in the audience. And he addresses them. And here's what he says. Chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. Addressing the Gentile believers, Paul reminds them that before Jesus, 
they were facing what we might call a double exclusion or a double alienation. They were alienated from God and they were alienated from God's people. Uh, You could call these, many people do, the horizontal and the vertical. Uh, You could call them the theological and the political. But however you think about it, the point is that before Jesus, the Gentiles had neither peace with God nor peace with his people. Look again at how Paul explains it. He says, verse 12, they were separate from Christ. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel, uh, which just means they were excluded from being part of God's people. He says they were foreigners, which means, again, not citizens, but it also means they are definitely not heirs to the covenant and the promise. And the result is, Paul says, they're without hope and they're without God. In other words, we might summarize it this way. The Gentiles were far from God, from his purposes and privileges, and they were far from his people. It's a double alienation. They're far from God, his purposes and privileges, and they're far from his people. Now, if you're a Gentile reading that, that doesn't sound good, right? That's a dire situation. But it's worth asking, I mean, before Christ, what's the alternative? Well, Paul doesn't spell it out, but it's very clearly implied by what he says here. The alternative was, of course, to be a Jew, to be part of Israel. The Jews, unlike the Gentiles, were near to God. Now, they're not reconciled with God, not yet, but they were near to him. They were his people. They were partners in his purposes, and they enjoyed the privileges of being his people. Uh, Chief among them, they were heirs to the promises. Heirs to the promise. They were, in short everything the Gentiles were not. But here's where the butter battle book comes in, at least in my mind. Okay, there's some differences here, they're significant, but did they need to create hostility? Was that the intention? Now, I know these are more significant differences than butter side up versus butter side down. God did set Israel apart on purpose. Uh, He gave them the Torah. That was part of the point of the Torah, to set them apart. But God's intent is that they would be a shining light for the Gentiles, not hostile to them. And yet, hostile and scornful they had become. Why this happened exactly is a longer and more complicated issue. It's one Paul struggles to summarize every time he brings it up. Uh, But the crucial point for us this morning, for our purposes, is simply this, that these differences were there and they did cause hostility. They didn't need to, but they did. And the Jews, rather than having compassion on those who were without God, who were without the guiding light of the Torah, instead scorned them. And the Gentiles, rather than being drawn to God and to his people, responded with bitterness and anger. And so the result for the Gentiles, as Paul says, is that they are both far from God and far from his people. Double alienation. All right, so it's a dreadful situation for both groups, but especially for the Gentiles. But now Paul gets to the good news. Jesus makes possible not only peace with God, but peace between Jew and Gentile. 
Look with me at verses 13 through 18. Paul says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were near and peace to those who were far away, for through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit." All right, there's a lot there, but right there in the middle, in verse 15, Paul gives us his thesis statement. He says that Jesus' purpose was to create one new humanity in himself so that he might make peace between the two groups and between both groups and God. Uh, The Gentiles were on the wrong end of a double alienation, but Jesus is going to provide a double reconciliation. And in the next few verses, Paul argues that Jesus did at least three different things that make that possible. First, verse 14, Paul says, Jesus destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now, we need to be careful here. I'll just warn you, this is the part that stressed me out this week, okay? Because it's tempting to just take this one little verse, to pluck it out of its context, and then run wild. Paul's throwing out the law, the Old Testament. You don't need it. Just get rid of it, right? Jesus did away with all of that. But we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. That's not what Paul is actually saying here. He's not throwing out the Old Testament He's not condemning the whole of the Torah. We know, actually, from just elsewhere in this letter and other things Paul has written, that his his view of the law is complicated and nuanced. Uh, Paul will say he believes that the law was a good gift. Uh, it, It was a lamp for their feet. It was a light for their path. And Paul is thankful for that. But Paul also recognizes that the law magnified the damage of sin. And, on top of that, intended or not, the reality was that by the way it had been interpreted and applied, the law had become a source of division and hostility between Jews and Gentiles. It had fostered scorn and condescension rather than compassion. So, if Paul isn't just throwing out the Torah, what is he suggesting here? You know, I'd like about three hours to explain this, or at least make a, a run at it, but I'll do my best here, <laughs> all right? What I think he's saying, based on the context we have, is this. You know, in the past, part of the purpose of the law, not the whole purpose, but part of the purpose, was that the law, together with circumcision, uh, functioned as sort of the boundary markers for God's people. These were the ways you knew who was part of God's people and who wasn't. Right? Were they circumcised? Did they keep the law? That's how you knew if they were part of God's people or not part of God's people. Uh, and that's why it caused division, and then of course later hostility, because it, it was a boundary marker. 
And I think what Paul is saying here is that Jesus put an end to that, not by throwing the whole of the law in the garbage, but rather by providing new boundary markers. And what are our boundary markers now? We are the people of God. How do we know who's part of the people of God and who isn't today? Well, Paul would say there's two main things. There's allegiance to the Messiah, and there's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those are the new boundary markers. And because of that, the law no longer needs to function that way. It no longer needs to create that divide. As Paul will say elsewhere about circumcision, now because of Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters anymore. Only new creation through allegiance to Jesus. We have new boundary markers. So the old boundary markers have been torn down. They've been destroyed. So first, what Paul says is that Jesus has destroyed that dividing wall that had created hostility. Second, verse 16, Jesus not only destroys the dividing wall, he then puts to death their hostility toward each other. Now, okay, obviously these are related, one and two here, but there is a difference. Okay, in the first point, Jesus removes the obstacle, the sort of almost physical obstacle that was causing division and hostility. But now, he says, Jesus is going to deal with the actual hostility that obstacle had caused. Uh, all of that scorn, all of that condescension and anger, all of that jealousy that had before been directed at one another, Jesus has taken all of that and put it upon himself. And then he's put it to death on the cross. This past spring, right as all the snow was melting, I don't know if you remember, we had all this snow that was still here in like March. Uh, and then we had just torrential rain for a couple days. And that's how all the snow went away. Well, one of those days, I go home from work. I'm kind of unpacking the stuff I had brought home with me. And I ran downstairs to the storage room to grab something. I don't remember what. And I don't remember because that first step I took into the storage room, I stepped into about an inch and a half of standing water. And of course, you know the feeling. Uh, the moment, uh, that first moment, the first thing you think is, why is my foot wet? And then your next thought is, oh no, uh, not good, right? And so I look around, there's just water covering our storage room, uh, and I right away realize the sump pump, which is in the storage room, we have the well in there, is not running. That's the problem. That's what's caused all of this. So I run over there, I kneel down, I reach down into the well to grab the pump to pull it out. I don't know what I was going to do with it, in case you're curious. I just was going to grab it and yell at it or something, I don't know. Uh, but I grabbed it, and as soon as I started to move it, it kicked on and started pumping and running, and running, and running, until it emptied out that well, and the water's just pouring in because it's been backed up into our drainage tile. Uh, and I have to tell you, the moment that pump started running, I experienced profound relief. Okay, okay, it's working, it's running, the water is exiting the house. But of course, I wasn't done, right? The obstacle, the problem, the source of all this damage had been fixed, it had been addressed. The pump was broken, it wasn't running, now it's running. Great. But somebody still has to deal with the damage that it caused. 
I spent the next couple hours squeegeeing water from all over this room into the well and then taking my shop vac, vacuuming water up that it, you know, the, it's backed up in the tile so it seeps up through my carpet. Hours of just vacuuming up water, squeegeeing it. The obstacle was gone, but the damage was still there. What Paul says here is, look, Jesus first dealt with the obstacle, with the dividing wall. He tore that down. He destroyed it. But there was still damage that that hostility had caused. Generations and generations of hostility. And Paul says, Jesus put that to death too. I just want to say, I increasingly find this to be one of the most compelling parts of the gospel. For me, but also for people I talk to who are not Christians and who wonder, what's the deal with this? Why, why, do you, why have you committed your life to this? Because what I say to them is, what else can offer anything to match this? What else are you going to do when you walk into a situation where there has been generations, centuries of hostility, of conflict, of crimes against one another? What do you got? Who else is going to make peace? What other way do you know? What Paul says is a, is a, is a profound and incredible thing. He looks at the Gentiles and he says to them, listen, listen. Whatever it is, however it is the Jews have sinned against you in the past, whatever they've done, however many those sins may be, Jesus has paid the price. He has laid down his life for those sins. And then he turns to the Jews and he says, whatever the Gentiles have done to you, however they have sinned against you, however many they may be, Jesus has paid the price. He laid down his life for those sins. So no one else need pay. Look, we don't always like to talk about this, but sometimes when there's conflict, a price has to be paid before there can be peace. Sometimes justice has to be done first. And if you don't understand that, just wait till the next time you're on the wrong side of injustice. Sometimes justice has to be done first. But the good news, Paul says, I mean, the gospel is that Jesus has already done justice. He did pay the price first. The price has been paid on the cross. Jesus put to death the hostility in his own body between Jew and Gentile. Jesus has not only torn down the barrier he has done away with the damage. He has dealt with the damage that has been caused too. Third and finally, in one body, Jesus has also now reconciled both groups with God. So if the previous two points, we saw how God made possible peace between Jew and Gentile, now Paul wants to say Christ has also made possible for both groups to have peace with God. And like everything else in this passage, this happens in Christ and in Christ alone. Just as the cross made peace possible with Jew and Gentile, now Jesus in his body reconciles both groups to God. Uh, the language here is, is, I mean, it's dense, it's packed with meaning, um, but I love how Paul makes, 
makes it explicit, uh, just in his very language. Uh, Look at what he says here. He says, both groups were reconciled to God in one body. In one body. There's not one sacrifice for Jews and one sacrifice for Gentiles. No, no, both groups, everyone who's reconciled to God is reconciled through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus has purchased a people for God, but not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles or Romans or Samaritans, but anyone and everyone who gives their allegiance to him, who trusts in him and identifies with him, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, anyone who is in Christ can have peace with God. Because of Jesus and Jesus alone, Paul can then, in verse 19, turn to these Gentiles, Gentile believers and say, you, you who were once far away, who were once strangers and exiles, you have been, you are now no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. You are members of his household. It's, there was a double alienation, but now in Christ there is a double reconciliation. I want to close this morning uh, by highlighting two take-home points from this passage. First, I want to point out one more time, just because it's, it's incredible, it's unmissable, that everything that happens in this passage happens in Christ. And I I do mean everything. Again, just look with me if you got the passage open. Verse 13, how is it that the Gentiles have been brought near? They've been brought near in Christ. Verse 15, how has the barrier, the great dividing wall, been destroyed? By Jesus setting it aside in his flesh. Verse 15 and 16, how has a new humanity been created and how has that new humanity been reconciled to God? In Jesus himself and in his one body. How are we all, even now, being built into a temple for God's presence? Verse 21, we are being built up, surprise, surprise, in Christ. Friends, in Christ alone, there is salvation and redemption and peace with God. In Christ alone, there is new creation, new life, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Christ alone are those who are far away brought near to God. There is just no other option, no other way to the Father, no other means of salvation. Jesus is the Messiah, he is our Savior, and he is the Lord. It all happens in Christ and in Christ alone. If you ever wondered where that song came from, that's where it comes from. So that's number one. Number two, I would want you to leave this morning understanding that the cross is still the power of God to bring peace today. You know, I think one of the challenges of this passage, I'll just say it's one of the things I wrestled with a little bit as I'm trying to think of how to give the sense of this passage to us, is that you know, maybe like the butter battle book where it's, it's hard to understand, hard to get too worked up because who cares? You know, butter side up, butter side down. We're not invested in that division or that conflict uh, just as we're not that invested in the Jew-Gentile conflict. And the result is it's easy for us to minimize it, to look at them and to say, well, they are making a big thing out of nothing. But 
we need to resist that temptation. Uh, whether we can really grasp it or not, in Paul's day, really for the first whole generation of the church, this was the great divide, the great division. It was a formidable dividing wall, and there were generations of hostility on both sides. And yet, on the cross, Paul says, Jesus destroyed the dividing wall, and he put to death the hostility between them. And I want to tell you this morning, the cross still has the power to do that today, across whatever divide we may encounter, or that we may be part of. And I think it's worth taking a moment to say, to admit, we need that power today just as much as we ever have. I mean, we we have everywhere we look, you can find division and hostility. Uh, You know, in some cases, you can see how it started. You can point to an event. Uh, You can go back in history and understand what set this chain of things in motion. You know, but it struck me as I was thinking about it this week, in other cases, it's hard to even say why there's hostility, why there's division. It's just there. It's real. We just don't even know why. But there's these divisions, these fractures everywhere, and there's hostility, real hostility involved in them too. And try as we might, we can't just wish them away, right? We can't just ignore them and hope that they're going to, we're going to wake up tomorrow and they'll be gone. Still today, especially today, the only thing I know, the only power I know that can not only tear down those walls but can also put to death that hostility is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's all I know. I, I, I want to, as we wrap up here, as I wrap up, I, I want to invite us to do something. It's a little weird, but maybe just, I'd like you to close your eyes just where you're at uh, if you want. But Paul closes this passage with a new image, a new metaphor, and I think it's beautiful. And I think it's worth just meditating on it for a moment and trying to imagine what what Paul is saying here, trying to picture it. All right, so after everything we have just read, we get down to verse 19 where Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And then he continues with this building metaphor. He says, In him, the whole building is being joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So I want you to picture this in your mind, if you would. What Paul is saying here. He's giving us a sort of heaven's eye view on what God is doing in Christ. He says what God is doing in Christ, one way of thinking about it, is God is making for himself a temple. He is building the temple where he will dwell. And he's building it, not out of limestone, not out of marble, but it is a temple of living stones, of people, redeemed one at a time, from every nation, 
tongue and tribe, from all across the world, one by one, as you give your allegiance to Jesus, you are transformed. And together, all these people, across all these divisions, all these divides are being pulled together, built together in Christ, so that we, the church, the Jew plus Gentile people of God, become the temple where God will dwell for all eternity. It's a beautiful picture. You can open your eyes if you want. To me, that is a beautiful and profound vision of what God is doing in Christ. It is a profoundly hopeful vision in our world full of hostility and division. But I want to leave you with this, my last thing, I promise. It's more than a vision. It's a reality in process. Uh, if you look at the verb tenses there, Paul says this isn't something God is going to do. It is something God is doing right now. Look around. I mean, even now, God is building his dwelling place. He's building his temple from living stones. One by one, he redeems us. Jew and Gentile, black and white, Republican and Democrat, Russian and Ukrainian, God's redeeming us, building us together in Christ, putting to death in his body the hostility between us so that we might become the place where he himself will dwell forever. Amen. Would you bow with me as we pray? And those, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we give you thanks. Uh, Lord, I, I do, I sit in awe of what you have done in Christ for the way that you have made peace possible, not only with God, that would have been incredible enough, but also with one another, that you have torn down dividing walls, you have put to death the hostility between us in your flesh. Lord, I just want to pray right now for the divisions that we ourselves are part of, uh, for situations where we are aware of hostility. God, I pray that we might be the agents of your peace, uh, that we might be willing to look to the cross and to remind ourselves when we are wrong, when we are the victims of injustice, that Jesus has died for those sins so that we might have peace with one another. And I pray, Father, that as we, as we live in that reality, uh, that we might become truly a light for the world that so desperately needs that message of peace and hope. In your name we pray, amen.